Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Everybody take a deep breath. Hold it. Let it out. Because I really believe God's got a word for us today as the church. Um... There's a little bit of heaviness that's associated with this. And so I want to just say before I go any further, I want you to hear everything that I preach and and kind of share with you out of the word today. I want you to hear it out of love and not as condemning. Because that's one of the things that the enemy loves to do is, is take something from the word of God where God sets a standard. And maybe at some point in our life we have we have fallen short of that. And the enemy loves to. Uh, beat us up with that. Make us think we're a failure. We're not usable by God. And that, and that is absolutely not true. But, but we're going to deal with some of the weight of God's standard this morning. And I want you to hear that as a shepherd's heart, that, that I love you. And, and I believe that if we are going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, if we're going to be bold enough to stand tall in a Babylonian culture, then sometimes we have to hear the heavy stuff. And sometimes we have to deal with the heavy stuff. And my fear is I'm not, don't mean this to sound critical towards the church or American churches or anything or whatever, but, but sometimes it feels like, and maybe I'm wrong, I'll probably be careful here, but it feels like we're kind of preaching feel-good stuff in the church today because that will grow numbers and grow attendance. And, and I just, the reason why I love this season of life that I'm in is I'm just opening up the Bible and let the text preach the text. So I got a lot of, lot of scriptures today as we've done every week as we're kind of walking through the book of Daniel. And the whole purpose of this is how do you and I not only survive but how can we be influencers in the Babylonian culture that surrounds us, okay? And remember, the Babylonian culture was full of pride. It was really big on image, pleasure, comfort, oppression of the weak. We've, we've talked all about those things. So how do you and I stand strong? How can we more than survive but become influencers in the culture that is around us but be faithful to the things of God? So for the most part of our journey through Daniel, we're on week six here, we've had five main characters. We've had Daniel, uh, Belteshazzar was his Babylonian name, and his street name was Shazzy, right? Okay, and then you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you had King Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, Keith, turn this down. Just, I'm getting just a little bit of a ring. Turn me down just, just a little bit. Only one of those five characters will remain through, really through the rest of the book of Daniel. Even today, we're going to see some new individuals and so Daniel chapter 5, you've got your Bibles, you can open there, that's where I'm going to start. I've got some other scripture I'm going to bring in, but for the most part, we're going to camp out in Daniel chapter 5. And what I want to do today, especially these first three or four verses, is that I'm going to kind of read a verse, stop, unpack, read a verse, stop, unpack, read a verse. I'm going to do that really just to kind of help you understand. And I, I enjoy the history of that, like it's kind of fun for me to read a story like this and go, oh, by the way, this happened, and, and Babylonian history records this, or Greek history records that. And so I'm going to kind of weave some of that history stuff in as we walk through that. So if you're ready, say amen. amen. All right, many years later, King Belshazzar, so we've got a new king, uh, gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. Okay? So it says many years later. That many years is, we believe, more than 30. Okay? And a lot had happened in those 30 years of time. You're not going to see Nebuchadnezzar's name anymore. And so what is about to transpire is actually written, it's, it's, it's confirmed in other sources of world history. What's happening in this moment to kind of set the stage for what we're going to read in the next few versions 
the verses. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of that statue and he was the head of gold and next was the chest of silver that had two arms? We think that represents that the Medes and the Persians came together, united their armies so that they could defeat the superpower of the Babylonians. We're going to see that. You're going to see the Medes and the, and the Persians combine forces. And right now they're right on the brink of Babylon. History tells us October the 10th of 539 B.C., the Persian army is on the brink of Babylon. Like they're just right there. They're poised to take Babylon. But the Babylonians felt confidence in their defenses. If you recall, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar loved to build. And remember, he had this stamp that he imprinted in so many of the bricks that were used on the wall and the north gate and, and even the uh, hanging gardens. He loved to build and he really built a vast defensive system. They believed like their greatest attack was going to come from the north. So the northern wall of Babylon at places had three layers that enemies would have to get through. So on October the 10th of 539 B.C., the Persians are on the outskirts of Babylon, but Babylon's not concerned. Matter of fact, they, um, the ruling regent, we're going to talk about that in just a second, he's going to have a celebration to almost inspire his leaders, to boost the morale of his nobles and his leaders and his officials, because he's confident in their own abilities and their defenses they have built up. So verse 2, it says, while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, and I'm going to unpack that, his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubine. Okay, So verse 1 said, King Belshazzar. Okay, And then here we have in verse 2, the New Living translation uses the term predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. But if you read it out of different translations, some of those translations say his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? Well, let me unpack their crazy family tree because Belshazzar is not the direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's a little bit of a, it's a crazy family tree. So I'm going to back up to Nebuchadnezzar's dad. And I talked about him last week, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar really was the one that amassed the Babylonian army. He defeated the Assyrians, and he's the one that started this rise of Babylonian power. Okay, then Nebuchadnezzar took over for him and reigned for 46 years. Nebuchadnezzar is what took Babylon to its height. He built the mass defensive. He built the wall. He built the north gate. All right? And then, and remember we talked about his exile of insanity... All right, but then while he was in exile, his son, this guy has quite the name, Evil Murdoch. Okay, that's, that's something else. Second Kings chapter 25, verse 27 says, In the 27th year of the exile of Jehoiakim of Judah, meaning Babylon had already conquered them, but they kind of had a puppet king that Babylon would appoint and put there. But Babylon was ruling. They were a part of the Babylonian empire. Evil Murdoch ascended to the Babylonian throne. Okay, so Murdoch was not the oldest son. Of Nebuchadnezzar, he was not the crown prince of Nebuchadnezzar, but for some reason he takes over, and we're not really sure. We know there's some family quarreling because Evil Murdoch is only in charge for like two years, and then he's actually assassinated. He's assassinated in 560 BC. So then Babylon goes through a few other leaders, and I don't have them listed, but there'd be a guy that'd be king for two years and a guy that'd be king for four years. Keep in mind, 
that many years that came up in, in verse 1. It's been over 30 years since Nebuchadnezzar ruled, and there was just a lot of chaos in the Babylonian community and in the Babylonian leadership that takes place. Okay, So Nabonidus now becomes the king of Babylon, and we believe him to be the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, um, Like Nebuchadnezzar, he has his own exile of insanity where he disappears literally for 10 years. And while Nabonidus is, is disappearing, somebody has to rule the Babylonian empire. Okay, Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, who this story references, he is the regent king. Means his dad is alive, his dad is absent somewhere, he's on some kind of own exile. And so Belshazzar, the scripture refers to him as king, and so he was king, but technically he was just a regent king. There was another king, but he was MIA, so Belshazzar is the one who is in charge. Scripture calls him king, but the root of that word that's there in Hebrew is actually means just leader. He's the one that's reigning, if you will. Okay. Well, to make it more confusing, the scripture says Belshazzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar was not his direct father. He was actually like his great-grandfather, grandfather, and all that. But keep in mind, the whole nation of Israel is referred to as sons and daughters of Abraham. They refer to Father Abraham. Okay? So sometimes things get lost in translation. Jesus would refer, or Jesus referred to as the son of David. Well, he was not David's, Solomon was. Jesus was not the direct descendant of David, but he was an ancestor. So in Scripture, when you see this, his predecessor or father Nebuchadnezzar, it's used in that same context as Father Abraham. All right? If you're with me, say amen. Because I know I got a little history stuff going on up in there. Okay. So Daniel chapter 1 tells us when King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, he completely destroyed the temple. And he took anything of value that was in the temple. Don't turn there. Let me just show it to you. 2 Kings 25, it says, So they brought these golden cups taken from the temple, from the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Well, that sounds just like what happened in Daniel chapter 5. Okay? So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and he brought all the things of wealth with him. So now, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is having a party. His enemy is just right outside the wall to boost the morale. He, he has this party and he's like, hey, you guys are worried about them, but do you not remember what we did in Judah? Do you not remember what we did to Israel? Hey, remember all that stuff, the, those golden cups, that silver stuff that came out of their temple? Yeah, bring all that out here. Uh, he used all this to boost the morale of his nobles. And he's like, hey, we're drinking out of the cups that were dedicated to their God. So how powerful is their God? And we're going to do the same things to the Medes and the Persians that are right there. Okay? So Daniel chapter 5, verse 4. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay? So just kind of bear with me. I'm going to read here probably about 10 verses because the text really does a good job of telling the story. Then suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace. My dad, we were Dallas Cowboy fans, still are. It's just really hard. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm saying? And so back in the 90s when Dallas was good, kids, you'll not believe it. They really did win ballgames back then. It was crazy. And uh, like we would have a team beat, you know what I'm saying? And my dad would go, that, that's the handwriting on the wall. 
Anybody ever heard that? Well, that's the handwriting on the wall, meaning it's about over. It's just about done. Okay, that's where this phrase comes from, the handwriting on the wall. There's this human hand that miraculously appears and he writes three, actually he writes three words. One of them is repeated. And so here is the story of the handwriting on the wall. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, verse 6, and his face turned pale with fright. I don't know about you, but that probably freaked me out a little bit. Like just this ghost of a hand starts writing, okay? His knees knocked together in fear and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to those wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed. So he makes this promise. Like if you can tell me what's going on there, regardless of what it reports, you'll be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. Like this ain't no football turnover chain. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm going to award him. And he will actually become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. You know why he's going to be the third highest? Because he's only the second highest. Because there is a first highest that is the king that's on an exile. And so he's like, hey, if anybody can translate to me, you are going to be my right hand. Verse 8. When all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother, okay, so this is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Remember, dad's off doing whatever dad's doing on his exile. So literally Belshazzar's mom comes in and she says she heard what was happening. She hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. I gave birth to you, but long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who is within this, who has the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him the chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, who the king named Shazi, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve difficult problems. Why don't you call for Daniel and he'll tell you what all of this means? Meaning, Daniel had long been forgotten. When Nebuchadnezzar died, Daniel's influence had just kind of faded out. Like, they, like the queen knew, but Belshazzar had no idea who he was. Yet God opened another opportunity for him to be an influencer in the culture. So the handwriting on the wall appeared and he wrote three words. One word actually appears twice. And this is what Daniel has to say. So again, I'm going to read kind of the story, all right? And then we're going to camp out for a second. Verse 23. This is Daniel talking. He says, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and you've had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, all praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, and wood, and stone, gods that can neither see or hear or know nothing at all. But you have not honored God who gives you breath of life and controls your destiny. I know you think you're a bad dude, but let me tell you, you're sitting in that seat because God allowed you to sit in that seat. In the book of Esther, which is a contemporary, it's... it's, it's it's the same time frame as this, okay? When they had parties, they would have men would have one party and women would have a separate party. That was just kind of the cultural expectation, okay? When parties were combined, it's not something you would let your children go to. It wasn't something that you would bring your kids. It was basically drunken debauchery. Like it's not even rated PG-13 or R. 
I mean, this is, this is Babylonian immorality. So basically, you have debauchery going on, and all this is on. They're, they're bringing the holy things of God from the temple in Judah, and they're adding that to their festivities. Okay, verse 24. So God sent his hand to write this message. This is what was written, many, many, tekel, parson. Okay, and this is what these words mean to you, king. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign, and it's about to end. The handwriting's on the wall. It's about to be over. Tekel means you've been weighed. You've been weighed on the balance, and you did not measure up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Those people that you're in here trying to boost morale against, your enemy that's outside, guess what? They're about to defeat you. I will say this about Belshazzar. He's a man of his word. Verse 29, he commanded, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. The turnover chain was hung around his neck, and he proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. That very night. So let me tell you what happened. Okay? Babylon was, was in a desert area. And they knew, I mean, they knew because of the statue that someday their reign would come to an end. So they were prepared for battle. They had stockpiled months and months and months and months of resources. One commentator said they had over 30 months of provisions to provide for an entire massive city. And the river Euphrates would run right through the middle of Babylon. Again, it's a desert area, but they had plenty of water because the river Euphrates would run right through the middle of that. Okay? They had been in a drought season, just like Oklahoma. On top of that, the Medes and the Persians upstream diverted a lot of the water flow, meaning they were pulling water off of the Euphrates River so that less and less and less water was going. Now, there was still water going through, but the riverbed was considerably drier than what was supposed to be. Now, the Babylonians, when they built their wall, they also built massive gates to protect invaders from coming in the river. But two things. Number one, the water was considerably less, so there was part of that that was exposed. The second thing, we started this chapter with a story that King Belshazzar had a party for a thousand of his nobles and officials. Well, if the bosses are going to party, don't you think the army's going to party? And so there was a night on October the 12th where the gates that secured the Euphrates River, they were left unguarded. And the Mede-Persian army comes marching through that river and nobody knew until it was too late. That very night, King Belshazzar lost his kingdom. He died. And from now on, you wake up tomorrow to a new chapter. You wake up to a new empire, the Medes and the Persians. The great, mighty Babylonian empire collapsed. Why? I think for you and I, we need to answer that question, why? At least our lives, our families, our churches not collapse under the same ruin. Amen, everybody? Amen. Verse 23, I've already read this, but I want to read it again. You, this is Daniel speaking. Listen, King, you have proudly, you didn't accidentally, you proudly defied the Lord of heaven, and you've had these cups from the temple of Judah. They're not yours. They weren't yours to begin with. 
that you've had these cups from the temple brought before you, you and your nobles, your wives, your concubine, in this debauchery have been drinking wine from them, praising other gods. You're basically toasting your Babylonian gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear or know anything at all, but you have not honored God. It's interesting because as you read Nebuchadnezzar's story, there's multiple times where he gets it like, oh, oh, wow, the Jewish God. Like the last thing we see from Nebuchadnezzar, he's given praise to Daniel's God. And now here, a generation later, they are defiling the things of God. They basically took the holy things of God and they tipped their glass to their gods. They were using sacred things and holy things to do unsacred and unholy things. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to get a little bit yelly this morning. It's fine. You're good. Front row, get your umbrellas out. There's a little spit flying around. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, David had died. Solomon was king. Solomon, I, I mean, David conquered. Solomon brought Israel to really to its peak of wealth. And so one of the things that Solomon did was he built a temple. And one night when Solomon was sleeping, they were ready to dedicate the temple. God speaks to Solomon. And this is what he says. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. He said, then one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and he said, and I'm not going to read all of that, but th that 2 Chronicles 7, yeah, it's that part where, where God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will heal their land. I need God to heal our land. Amen, everybody? It's that same passage. This is what God says to Solomon. For I have chosen. Solomon, you didn't choose. God speaking says, I have chosen this temple. And he says, I have set it apart to be holy. A place where my name will be honored forever. I will watch over it. For it is dear to my heart. God saying, this temple, Solomon, that you've built in my direction... I've chosen it, I've anointed it, I've made it my favorite place. From there, it is near and dear to my heart. It is sanctified. One of the translations says it is consecrated. We don't use that terminology a lot. That's why the New Living says it has been set apart. Okay? But that word means it's been devoted. It's been dedicated to God. It was dedicated for the use of God. It was set apart as holy. Do you understand what's going on with this temple and the precious things of the temple? They were God's, no touchy. It was his. And so you have an arrogant Babylonian regent. He's not even really the full king. And to boost the morale of his defeated army, he brings in all these sacred things from the temple in Jerusalem, and he toasts the Babylonian gods. Hey, they thought they were bad. We're big and bad. We're, what, may what happened to Judah happen to the Medes and the Persians out there. And enough was enough, and the Babylonians fell. That very night, Belshazzar would die. Why? When I look at this passage, I can draw one conclusion. And they don't have anything to do with a magic hand. One conclusion is they treated holy things as unholy. They treated sacred things as unsacred. They made uncommon things. They just tried to make it very common. Listen, we've talked about pride. 
We've talked about oppression. We've talked about pleasure. But my friends, if there is one lesson that we learn, if there's one lesson you learn out of this whole series of Daniel, it's this one right here. May the characters from this story, may this lesson scare the holy into us. Because we live in a Babylon of our own. We live in a culture that is constantly trying to tear down the sacred things of God. And we'll never be influencers in our own ability. We'll only reach influence if God says now. And the only reasons the Babylonians conquered Israel, the only reason the Babylonians conquered Judah was because God allowed it to happen. If you and I are going to serve the purposes of God, if we're going to be influencers in this Babylonian culture that's around us, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we've got to refuse to bow to a golden image. We've got to stand strong in our faith when everyone else around us is bowing down. You and I must stand against a culture and we must stand for the holy and sacred things of God. And I think this is a good place for you and I to kind of hit pause Maybe even go off script for a little bit and talk about what does God consider sacred that is under attack today. I love you. And I'm going to say some things. Some of you might disagree with. It's okay. You have the right to be wrong. I'm fine with that. I'll be honest with you. In 2022, I'm going to say some things that YouTube might want to take down. I'm going to say some things that's going to sound old-fashioned. I'm going to say some things that you're going to, boy, sure, I'm glad I didn't have some of my friends here today because it might feel a little bit out of touch. But I fear with the constant bombardment of the enemy and the Babylonian culture that is around us, there are things a generation ago we would not speak of in public, but today we entertain ourselves with the uncomfort of its humor. Y'all getting it? Y'all getting it? Y'all going to amen me? Y'all going to shout me down here in a minute. I feel it. Listen, we are being desensitized to the sacred things of God. This is the plan. The enemy wants to shorten the distance from temptation to participation. And he's doing that by desensitizing you and I to the things that God considers holy and sacred. And he's trying to make the uncommon things just common. Just common. By constantly bombarding our minds with music and images, and media, and profanity. You'll hear, it's okay. What does it matter? It's no big deal. And I'm here to tell you, there are some things that are a very big deal to God. And church, we better wake up. We better know what is sacred and holy to God. Least we tip our glass to a Babylonian culture. And if we don't heed the warnings out of Daniel, we may be pulled in. And may step away from temptation into participation. I love you. And I listen, I don't want to say anything to condemn, make you feel worse about yourself. Because some of us have got a sordid past. I've got black stuff in my past. I went through a divorce. It was painful. It was hard. It was difficult. And so I don't want you to hear anything that's heavy or condemning. That's not what I've... And this is what I've discovered about people such as myself that have gone through those painful things. Like a divorce. Like sexual immorality in our past. Like we wish we would have never... And so young people today, take the lesson from what Daniel and the Babylonian culture, what, just take the lesson of what's here, all right? So quickly, I'm going to go through this. The sacred things of God, number one is marriage. It is sacred. I love you. I'm going to go off script for a second. I love teachers. I love principals. I love administrators. 
man, we are in a crisis in the state of Oklahoma, but really across the issue that we have a shortage of people who are willing to go spend their days in education. And we want to talk about money to the issue. And yes, it would be nice to be made more, but every educator I ever talked to, that's not the issue. The issue is we are dealing with a difficult generation. And most times it's not even the kids, it's the parents that are the issue. We live in a Babylon that is absolutely trying to destroy God's image of the family. And that the trauma that little boys and little girls have gone through because mama decided her work spouse made her feel more special than her God-given spouse. We live in a generation that is dragging our children's well-being and their emotions through a cesspool of mommy and daddy's happiness. And I'm not here to judge anybody. Divorce is not the point of this message, but we have a generation of kids that have been raised on guilt money because mommy and daddy didn't have time for their own kids. So we give them whatever it will take just to entertain them, to make them happy. Here, we're going to give you an iPhone. Let the iPhone babysit you so I don't have to deal with the inconvenience of being a dad. And we have torn down the image of sanctity of marriage. And then we wonder why it's not working. We wonder why we have kids that don't understand gender. That's why we have a record number of mental health medications being prescribed. Listen, it's not the kid's fault. They're too young to know better. I all believe this all started when we allowed the enemy to start chipping away at the sanctity and sacredness of marriage and family. And that all spills over into sexuality. My great-grandfather fought in World War I. He was a mule skinner. My great-grandmother went to college. She would go horseback. She would ride over four miles a day. She lived at Daisy. She would ride to Doss just down the road. And she would go over there and she'd teach kids. They married lived in Daisy, on their way into Stringtown or Atoka, they never once passed a billboard where there was a half-dressed person trying to sell watches. They had Kellogg Grocery right there at Daisy, little dry goods store. They didn't sell magazines with half-naked people. Never once did my great-grandmother ever have to wonder, am I supposed to look like her? Is that even real? But because we live in a culture that has given up the sanctity of marriage and we've given up the sanctity of sexuality. The world says it doesn't matter who you love. The world says, girls, if it's cute, just put it on. But my God says you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him. He's called us out of darkness to live in his marvelous light. And somebody ought to say amen. Young girls... You can be cute and holy. Young men, God don't care about if you're cool or not. He cares if you're holy. And you can trust him in that. Like, it may not be as much fun in high school, and, and you might get made of some things in the short term. Listen, but you are not bowing down to a Babylonian culture that is set to destroy God's calling, God's plan, God's destiny, and God's best for your life. Marriage, family, sexuality, it is sacred. Everybody say, I love BK. Not all y'all said that because you don't know what's coming. Life is sacred. Look at Jeremiah 1.5. God's speaking to Jeremiah when he's calling him. He says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's room. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. You know what Babylon wants to tell you Jeremiah 1.5 is? A tissue. 
had an amazing 5K race yesterday. But that thing was birthed out of pain of the mama and the daddy that lost a baby that was stillborn. Lost a baby while it was still in the mama's womb. And you know why it hurt so much? You know why there was so much deep grief? Because it wasn't a tissue. It was a God-given life. A baby is not an inconvenience. It is a conceived masterpiece created in the image its creator by God. And I normally stay out of politics, but I don't think the sanctity of life is a political issue. It's a Babylonian issue. Oh, preacher, you shouldn't talk about that. Why? TikTok is. Facebook is. So why don't the church speak the truth so your kids can hear it? The church should be the standard bearer and shine the light of what is good and holy and sacred. Life is sacred. No matter what social media influencers say, what politician talking heads say, listen to me, young people, this is a lesson you do not want to learn the hard way. Number three, the church is sacred. If you want to see my fangs come out, just talk about my wife and kids. You can talk about me. I'm used to it. Now, my bride... I can argue, I mean, discuss things with her. But don't attack my wife. The church is the bride of Christ. And I think Jesus takes it personally when people try to tear down the church. Second Corinthians, Paul calls the church the bride. Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. We're the bride. There is a movement of deconstruction. There's a movement of trying to deconstruct Christianity, trying to deconstruct faith. That's going on on social media. Listen, there is an attack on the church, an attack on Christianity. And if you and I are going to be influencers, you got to come to church on Sunday morning and get your soul fed. You're going to need an army of people in a small group with you. You're only going to find that in the church. It is sacred and holy to God. It ain't perfect, but it's God's bride. Amen, everybody? Jesus takes it personally when people attack the church. Lastly, I'll close with this. Me. And I don't mean me, Brent Kellogg, I mean me as in you. Your life, your purpose, your plans, your destiny, you are sacred in the eyes of God. You are set apart. You are called of God. His name is upon your head. You are anointed by God. You are a part of that chosen generation. You are sacred. And the enemy wants to tell you you've gone too far. You've sinned too much. You've made too many mistakes. Your best will never be. You've sinned so much that God can forgive you, but he can't use you. And my friends, that is a lie of Babylon. We'll get there in the coming weeks. But the Persians will win the night of Babylonian chapter 5, or Daniel chapter 5. And tomorrow morning, you wake up to a new ruler, and you're going to see King Darius, and then we're eventually going to see Cyrus the Great. And what they do, what the Persians do, is they allow all the exiles to go home. The book of Ezra, it's a contemporary book to this. It is about King Cyrus allowing the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple and restore the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the beginning of Ezra, these words are found. Ezra chapter 1, verse 7, it says, King Cyrus the Great himself brought out the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, and he placed them in the temple of his own gods. These are the same things that Belshazzar used that night with those thousand nobles to toast his gods. But King Cyrus redeemed them. He called them out of storage, and he sent them to Jerusalem to be put back in the holy place in the temple where they were intended to be. Listen to me. No matter where Babylon is taking you, it is never too late. 
They come, the culture might bombard you and you might have given in. Temptation might have become participation. But if you will humble yourself and pray and seek his face, the Babylonian culture does not have to own you and it doesn't have to own your kids. When Cyrus said, okay, you can go back home. There were some who said no. Because they loved the Babylonian culture so much. Church, may we not love the Babylonian culture so much. God is calling us to the sacred. God is calling us to the holy. And we live in a world where we're constantly bombarded. But just like King Cyrus redeemed those holy things, it is time for you and I, the church, to bring back, to redeem, to stand for what is sacred. Amen, everybody? May this never be our story. When Jesus comes to get his bride, may he find us prepared and holy and ready and living a life worthy of his calling. May God use us to be influencers in a unholy world. Amen, everybody? I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.